All right, let's begin today by um, praying Psalm 104 together. It's on page 822 of your hymnal. Page 822 in the back. We'll be discussing and studying the nature of God today. Um, and there's, a, of course, a number of psalms we could do to introduce that topic, but Psalm 104 is a, certainly an appropriate one. <clears throat> I'm speaking of the nature and character of the God who made heaven and earth, the one and only true and living God. Let's um, pray this psalm together, Psalm 104. Praise the Lord, O my soul. He wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent and lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. He makes the clouds his chariots and rides on the wings of the wind. He makes winds his messengers, flames of fire his servants. He set the earth on its foundations. It can never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains, but at your rebuke the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder they took to flight. They flowed over the mountains. They went down into the valleys to the place you assigned for them. You set a boundary they cannot cross. Never again will they cover the earth. He makes the springs pour water into the ravines. It flows between the mountains. They give water to all the beasts of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds of the air nest by the waters. They sing among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied by the fruit of his work. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for man to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth wine that gladdens the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread that sustains his heart. The trees of the Lord are well watered, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. There the birds make their nests, the stork has its home in the pine trees. The high mountains belong to the wild goats, the crags are a refuge for the conies. The moon marks off the seasons, and sun a wind to go down. You bring the darkness, it becomes night, and all the beasts of the forest prowl. The lions roar for their prey, seek their food from God. The sun rises and they steal away, they return and lie down in their dens. Then man goes out to his work, to his labor until evening. How many are your works, O Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. There is the sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things both large and small. There the ships go to and fro, and the Leviathan, which you form to frolic there. These all look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send your spirit, 
they are created, and you renew the face of the earth. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. He who looks at the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. May my meditation be pleasing to him as I rejoice in the Lord. But may sinners vanish from the earth and the wicked be no more. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. Heavenly Father, indeed, this morning we praise you and we bring before you ourselves, Father, and we ask that you would dwell with us again this Lord's day. Um, that as we worship together um, in about an hour, as your people gather, that you would in, for, in fact send forth your spirit um, to renew the face of the earth, that you would renew us, Father, um, through your Son as you minister to us in word and sacrament. And we ask now that you would be with us by your spirit, that same Holy Spirit, as we um, discuss and consider um, now um, your nature, um, what it is um, that you are. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, friends, good morning. It's good to be with you. Everybody get a handout. Anybody need one? Jeremy was passing them out. I think they're back on the sound booth. Jeremy, will you point Kim to them? Thank you. Very good. So um, we are jumping into a new um, section of the confession today, uh, chapter 2. Um, chapter 1, of course, was of Scripture. Um, chapter 2 is entitled, Of God and of the Holy Trinity. Um, I've printed the first paragraph there um, of the chapter, and I'll read that in a second. But before we do, I just want to say this. Um, this task that um, all theology is about, but certainly this um, particular chapter, um, uh, the task of studying God, of defining God, of speaking of God, um, is one that has um, inherent limitations about it. Um, those limitations are partly due to human sin um, and uh, the fact that our vision of God is not as clear as it, as it should be, as it might be, um, because of um, uh, human sin and, and brokenness and, and failure um, and corruption. But also, it's, it's, it's also a task that is limited by um, the difference between us and God, which is that he is the creator, he is the eternal one, and we are uh, creatures. Uh, we are those who are limited by time and space. And so there's a sense in which all words uh, fail. Um, uh, all words fall short. Um, this um, paragraph that we're about to read is long. It's one long sentence, and it has uh, many words and descriptions and true descriptions of God, um, and we're going to look at that. But but it's not, um, there's a difference between saying true things about God and saying comprehensive things about God, right? Um, saying all that could be said about God, um, that would be um, impossible, um, even if you took all the time um, that you had um, all of your life and said all the words that you knew to say, um, still you would not be able to define God or capture him. Or, or, uh, and, and I think even the, the way in which, as we read this paragraph together, you can see that dynamic that the the divines here are wrestling after words and they, they can't say everything um, even they're aware of how their language falls short and reminds me of Paul's uh, words um, in first uh, Corinthians 13 um, he's speaking of many things there but certainly speaking of our knowledge of God where he says um, now I see through a mirror dimly but then I shall see face to face 
Um, and, and I think that is something, a dynamic that we always have to wrestle with when we do uh, this task that we call theology, um, the study of the living God. Um, so let me, let me just jump in. We'll read this um, paragraph together and then talk about it um, um, as we go. So chapter 2, uh, paragraph 1. Um, the Westminster Confession of Faith states this, There is but one only living and true God. And you can see um, those parentheses with the, um, the letters are all connected to the scripture proofs that the writers of the confession chose to demonstrate um, where their words were um, based out of in the scriptures. So you can look down and look those up at your leisure if you like uh, this week. There is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will, for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. Let me um, read um, briefly two passages from the Old Testament that I think, well, I know because they're listed there, um, are behind um, some of the um, statements here. The first comes from Genesis, or Deuteronomy 6, um, where the Lord says this by the prophet Moses, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That statement that Moses gives us here, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh your God, Yahweh is one. And then in Exodus 34, which is actually one of our readings this morning in the liturgy, um, this is after the incident with the golden calf, um, Moses um, pleads with the Lord, intercedes, and he has mercy on the people of Israel and does not destroy them. Um, and Moses says um, in verse 18 and 33, he says, please show me your glory. And Yahweh said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name. And then he says in verse 20, but he said, you cannot see my face for no man, for man shall not see me and live. And Yahweh said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed away. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not be seen. And then in verse five in chapter 34, Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood with him that is with Moses there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, 
slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. All right, with that context, let me read this chapter or paragraph again, and um, let's continue to think about it and meditate on it together. There is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will, for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. I think what I love most, and we can talk about this in detail, um, the words here, what they mean, and any questions you have about them. But I think I love what I love most about this definition of God, sort of, or just maybe description of God's a better way to put it, is the the transcendent character um, of God that comes through here, um, the one only true and living God, and who He is, and His essence and being as He's revealed Himself in the Scriptures to us. Um, there is the uh, there should I think be a great sense of majesty and awe, um, even just reading um, these descriptors of who God is and His and His uh, the unity of His um, person. Um, Catherine. Sonder Egger um, uh, is a contemporary theologian who's kind of a fascinating person. She wrote her dissertation in 1990, and then she didn't publish anything for like 30 years. Um, and then just a few years ago, she came out with this really brilliant uh, beginning to a systematic theology. And what she did there, which was unusual in the current milieu of theology these days, is instead of writing first about God's triune nature, um, she begins with a volume that is about God's oneness, that God is one. And, um, and that is a, is a shift in modern theological discourse. Um, the 20th century and the early 21st century has been the great flowering of Trinitarian theology. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. And, and there's a lot of good Trinita Trinitarian theology that's been done the last hundred years. Um, a lot of fascinating uh, work has been done. Um, but if you notice the way that the Westminster Confession is lined up um, uh, in chapter two, they don't begin with God's triune nature, they begin with God's oneness, right? Um, here in this first chapter, um, it's the, or the first paragraph. And the third paragraph is where they define God as being a triune. And that actually is a more um, historic um, uh, way of working through God's um, character, who God is is beginning with his oneness. And so um, um, this woman, Catherine Sonderegger, um, 
sort of does, does that in her systematic theology, so, and she's a great writer um, as well. So I just want to read these quotes. I think they go along with uh, what we just heard from the standards and illuminate this, this idea that God is one. And what she argues there um, is, is not only God's oneness being that he is um, one being with three persons, um, you know, unified in the Godhead, um, but God is one mean, meaning there is no other like him, right? There is, there is nothing like him um, in the universe. Um, there are no rivals. There are no, um, there, there's nothing that can, that can comprehend him in his essence. Um, that God's oneness um, does not simply mean um, that he is one while being three persons, but also that he is one in the sense that he is alone um, in who he is. Um, there is. There is no one. Um, who, is, who is as he is. So she writes, God is supremely, gloriously one, surpassingly, uniquely one. Nothing is more fundamental to the reality of God than this utter unicity. Unicity. Such is God's nature. Such is his person. One. Oneness governs the divine perfections. All in the doctrine of God must serve, set forth, and conform to the transcendent unity of God. Nothing we say is so close to the heart of Scripture as is the oneness of God. The people of God, the people Israel, worship the one God, and the everlasting covenant between this people and its Lord is affirmed, honored, and kept by the teaching that the Lord God is one, unique. There is no form, nor likeness, no visible presence in temple or cult, no idol, no consort, nor rival to this one God. From the first commandment to the Shema, which is what we read from Deuteronomy 6, from the prohibition of idolatry, the first commandment, to the prophetic call for purity in Israel's cultus, right? Think of the book of Leviticus. Nothing is so adamant, so relentless, so holy as the call to honor the oneness of God. Just this we learn from the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we are to love the one God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. We follow the prophets and apostles as we teach, worship, and study the one God. And then she goes on in the next um, paragraph there. The oneness of God beckons us into the mystery of God. There is no contemplation of the supreme oneness of God without taking to prayer. To attempt to speak of the one God whose nature is without form or, or similitude, or similarity basically, is to strive to name, approach, and worship the God who is unapproachable light, holy fire, and goodness. Around this one is thick darkness. We pray that God's entire goodness may shield us, and in that shielding pass by so that we may know the mystery of this God. We hunger to know the oneness of God, to rest in it, and that hunger is the Spirit's gift to us, quickening our appetite for divine things, our search into the mystery of God, the pilgrimage of the Christian life. There is then no fully proper or exhaustively third personal knowledge of the Lord's oneness. Right? It's not something we can study objectively um, outside of it. We do not stand and look at this predicate always. Divine oneness is contemplated on bended knees. Uh, think about Moses and the cleft of the rock in, in uh, Exodus 34. 
It is an encounter at the foot of the holy mountain and in the cleft of a rock. In living devotion and dependence upon God, then ask, what is this one that is God himself? All right. We can talk about the details of the words here, and we'll do that in a moment. Any general just responses or thoughts to kind of what I'm saying, what you've heard here from this theologian, or as you hear the, the kind of, I think really kind of awe-inspiring language of this paragraph in the standards. Any thoughts, any reflections, any comments or questions? Anybody? Eric? Oh, and her comments? Yeah. Yeah. Anything else? Yeah, Donovan? I think she's just trying to contemplate really and take seriously um, that reality that is revealed all throughout the Old Testament and New Testament too, but particularly Deuteronomy 6, right? Um, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, Yahweh your God is one. Really trying to reflect deeply on that. What does that mean, right? And it's not just about the unity of the persons in the Trinity, um, there being one um, Godhead, but, but it also has to do with this um, transcendence of God, um, the separation between him and creation, um, his holiness in that way. That's what I would say, yeah. So it's, it's more a positive articulation than in a polemic critique of anything, yeah. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Yeah, be happy to. Yeah, I mean, as you think about the history of theology, um, theological reflection over the centuries, um, uh, I would say that that when you read um, medieval um, or even ancient church fathers, um, right? No, no, no. I'm, yeah, I understand. Um, if you were to do so, um, um, you would find theological reflection beginning with the character of God. Um, as, as one, um, and then proceeding from there to begin to think about the distinction between the persons of the Trinity and how they relate to one another. For example, if you read um, Augustine's Confessions, you will find that he addresses throughout um, that work um, not one of the persons of the Trinity so much as the one God again and again. Um, and, it, it's a, and it's a distinctive choice um, in terms of um, early medieval theology. You see this um, and with Aquinas, for example, as well, who's you know, one of the towering figures of um, medieval theology, um, really trying to understand and define um, God, in his pers- God in himself um, apart from um, his triune character. And so certainly the Trinity comes in, um, but, but begins with the nature and character of God in himself. Um, in his oneness, we might say. Um, what you see in the 20th century um, 
and early part of the 21st century is a movement toward really doing, I, I think, profound and wonderful work, and I, I'm not against this movement at all, I think it's wonderful, um, into what we call the economic trinity, which is the trinity um, in, not so much in its essence, the three persons, but how the three persons relate to one another um, throughout history, um, in redemption particularly. Um, and so there's been a great deal more sort of thought about those things, and, and almost to the extent where um, the, there, there's, in mod, I would say, just broadly speaking, in modern theological discourse, there's much more emphasis on God's triune nature than on his oneness. Um, and so what this um, Sonderger, Sonderger is doing is, is sort of pushing back against that. Um, I mean, it's a little bit kind of, you know, what's the word, um, you know, in-house, do you know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it's a little bit um, uh, inside baseball or whatever, but. Well, I mean, honestly, historically speaking, one of the just reasons is Karl Barth, um, who you know was an early 20th century theologian, Lutheran theologian, who um, just shifted modern theological discourse in a million ways. Um, in some ways, all theology done since Barth has been, it's like J.R. Tolkien and um, you know all fantasy literature since then. Everybody's either you know trying to do it. Tolkien did, or they're trying to, you know, do something different in opposition to him, or whatever. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, but you can't get around the Lord of the Rings if you're gonna write fantasy literature. You got to take into account somehow. And so, in a similar way, I would say all really all modern theology um, is dealing with Bart in some way, right? And that'll change, you know, in the next fifty to hundred years. I think Bart's influence will not be quite so um, significant, but um, but Bart is someone who certain. And look, I mean, there there are certainly huge problems with Bart. You, would not be able to be ordained in the PCA, um, obviously, um, largely because of his views on inerrancy and scripture and whatever. But, but, I mean, Bart's a fascinating theologian who um, contributed greatly to um, a lot of good theological discourse. Um, and I'm, I give thanks for Karl Bart, even though I disavowed some of his views, and even there were some really deep issues of morality in his life that were, um, you know, he had a mistress for like decades and decades that he lived with along with his wife. It was a really weird deal. Um, he was an interesting, strange man, um, but also brilliant. And so just historically speaking, I think that because Bart really was emphasizing the triune character of God, particularly the person of Jesus Christ and how he reveals the Father um, and the way that the persons then relate to one another. And so I'd say that I think that's just kind of practically the main reason. Right. And so I think there's a way in which the oneness of God is in some sense more 
basic or more easily comprehensible to those um, outside of the faith, um, whereas the Trinity is more unique to the faith and more based on revelation, right? So yeah, I think that's fair to say. Certainly in, in, the, in, the, in the movement of the scriptures, the oneness of God is 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 fundamental not that the trinity isn't there in the old testament but you really don't fully understand the trinity until you get to the gospels right and jesus and that's one of the primary things jesus is doing is not only revealing the way of redemption but also the true nature of god that god is father son and holy spirit one god uh, world without end and he he is revealing that and we really we didn't have the new testament we would not understand obviously the trying nature of god in the way that we do um I mean, I, you can go back to the Old Testament and say, oh, well, there it is, you know, um, but not, not without the person of Jesus in time and space and history. Can you really do that? I think Eric had a question, but you had a comment. I think Philippe goes back a little bit that that's how God reveals himself. I mean, in, in terms of the Old Testament, he reveals himself as one. Explanation. Yeah. Yeah, what? Absolutely. Yeah, Eric. Yeah, absolutely. There, there is absolutely a danger. I agree, Eric, in 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 not um, illuminating the Trinity, not um, speaking of the Trinity clearly. Um, uh, kind of Unitarianism, as you said. There is always that danger in Christian theology. And but I, I guess what I would say is I don't think. I mean, certainly as you hear the discourse and the way that that I preach or teach or the way that we worship on Sunday morning, um, I don't think I don't think we're going to miss. You know what I mean? Like there is a strong emphasis, um, at least in the culture of our congregation, on God's triune nature. And I think what I'm trying to do here is also um, to say, but also God is one. And that's, that's an appropriate way. We, there has to be some sort of multi-perspectivalism on this, um, that we can speak of God truly as one, because he speaks of himself that way. Um, even as we also speak of him truly as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, um, both of those things can be, can be said. And, and I think there, in theology, there's always this danger of, you know, we're, we're moving between one pole and another. And I think that's, you can see that throughout the history of, of Christian theology through the ages. Um, yeah. I mean, in some sense, it's the way to express the perfect unity of the Trinity, mm -hmm. right? 
They're not at all. <laughs> they are not. They are not in conflict. Um, and I think also what I would say today is if there is, um, there, if we think about the doctrines of transcendence and imminence, right? Um, transcendence being God being over his creation and separate from his creation. Imminence being the doctrine that God is with his creation. Um, God is with us. Um, which of those doctrines is more in um, sympathy today? More in currency. God's tra- transcendence or his imminence? We, imminence, right? We, we, we hear again and again, right? Emmanuel, God with us, etc., etc. And that, like that's true, right? I mean, that's good. We need to hang on to God's imminence. Um, but there's certainly in our broader culture today and even within the church, even within uh, the Reformed Church, the, even within our denomination, there is, I think, a loss of the transcendence of God, God being over us, God being separate from us, God being um, dwelling in unapproachable light, um, as Paul says in First Timothy. Um, the kinds of things that we, we reflect on when we sing that hymn, right, immortal, invisible, um, that wise only God, only wise God. Like this, this, you know, when we say, when we sing holy, 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 like these hymns that sort of really... Um, portray for us God's um, transcendence, those things are not as in vogue anymore. And, and I think some of that is connected to this dynamic, that it is the oneness of God um, where we really um, have to deal with his transcendent character. Um, it is in his triune nature that he dwells with us um, in the person of his son, most particularly, and also the, the, you know, the drawing near of the spirit. But what, what, what Christian doctrine does is it brings those things together, right? That um, verse that we recite every Lord's Day um, in our liturgy, um, for we have died and our life is hidden now with Christ in God, right? I, I mean, that the transcendence of God and the imminence of God, right, his triune character and his oneness come together in that verse because what we're saying is that this God that we just described in this chapter, who is most holy, most free, most absolute, almighty, et cetera, et cetera, incomprehensible, um, immense, um, all these things. Um, we're saying in the person of Jesus Christ, by our union with him, our lives are hidden now with Christ in God, in um, the oneness of God. Um, does that make sense? Like that's what Christian theology is trying to do, is trying to speak of these things that are, that are almost impossible to describe. And I think Paul's words there come as close as possible to, to saying everything at once. Um, we died and our lives are hidden now with Christ in God, uh, which is a profound thing to think about. Think, you had a comment or question, Scott? Are there any main options um, that are alternatives to the oneness, like her- heresies that deny the oneness of God? Um, yeah, that's a good question. Um, no. That's a good question. I mean, I would say historically probably not I mean you could argue that um, you know like if you if you turn Jesus into this kind of created being who then becomes divinized in some way right and what does that do to the oneness of God Um, um, but historically Christianity has not really struggled with you know there are three gods not one you know what I mean Um, so that yeah that's a good question i off the top of my head, I would say no, that hasn't been a, a fundamental temptation of the church in the same way that, you know, believing that Jesus was a, a created man, not God himself. Obviously, that's been a huge problem at times in the church's history. 
Um, yeah, James, and then I want to get into the little bit of the meat of the statement here. It's okay. Well, What stands out in this description? Yes. Yeah. And I think the freedom of God is just really interesting mm -hmm. um, idea and one that we don't talk about. Yeah, that's a fundamental aspect of who God is. Not only that he's most holy, which means that he's set apart. It's not only about his moral perfection, but it's also about his, his being set apart um, from his creation, uh, that he's independent of his creation, um, which is related, as you said, to the, him being most free. God is non-contingent, right? He... Um, he is. Um, we are always fundamentally dependent upon him. Um, he is not in any way on us. Um, there is not, um, there's no contingency in God. Um, he is absolutely perfectly free to do as he will um, in every way. Um, now we can be confident that he will act in certain ways because he has um, revealed himself and made promises to us um, in terms of redemption and all sorts of things that he will do these things. But um, but he is not, you know, in, in his own character, he, he is completely uh, free. Um, although, you know, his character makes him um, understandable to us, comprehensible. Yeah, Jeremy. Paul speaks of that way in, in Ephesians. Is that what you're thinking about? One God and Father of all, he says. There's one faith, one baptism.
don't know if I agree with that or not, but go ahead. Um, yeah, I'm not really, I, I think I see your dilemma, and part of your dilemma is just inherent in the nature of Christian theology, um, was particularly when we come to speaking of God's triune nature as well as the unity of his being. Um, and it's, it's, difficult, it's difficult to, to do that without becoming, her, you know, like saying things that are not true, right? Um, even things that are heretical, right? How do we... How do we talk about praying to the Father? Um, yeah, I, I, underst I understand what you're saying. Um, and I, I, the dilemma is real. Um, I, I do think Christian prayer is fundamental. This does not mean we shouldn't pray to all the persons of the Trinity in some sense, but Christian prayer as Jesus Christ has revealed it to us is prayer to the Father, right? By the power of the Spirit through the Son in the name of the Son. That, that is Christian prayer fundamentally. Um, and, and we, and I think that is something, as you think about just that particular dilemma, so to speak, um, that is, that's an appropriate way to pray. And I think the basic fundamental way of prayer. But let me, let me, um, let me just make a comment on, um, uh, there are often questions about what does it mean that God does not have passions, that he's without passions. Y'all see that line um, there in the second, or that word in the second line of the paragraph. And so I just wanted to deal with that for a minute in case that's a question that someone might have. Um, the verse that is quoted there in support of that um, um, doctrine is in Acts uh, 14. Um, where Paul and Barnabas, I believe, are um, uh, mistaken for God at Lystra. They do a miracle. There's a man who couldn't use his feet. Um, he was crippled, and Paul heals him. Um, and then in verse 11, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lycaonian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Uh, and the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments, right? They were terrified and um, grieved. And they rushed out into the crowd crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. Or as the um, King James translated, of like passions um, as you. Um, uh, the Greek word there is homeopathos, um, like, and then pathos being the word that's translated passion, right? Uh, similar passions. We are of similar passions with you, or like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things, right, the worship of Zeus and Hermes, to a living God 
like the one who is above us, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, the one who is not of like nature with us, right? Who is not of homeopathos um, with us. Um, so that's the verse that's quoted there. Um, on the back of your, or not the quotes quoted, the verse that's referred to there by the writers of the confession. On the back of your handout, Robert Lethem have quoted his explanation of this phrase, the meaning of without passions in the confession seems to me to run along the following lines. God is not to be compared to the creature. He is spiritual and invisible. Immediately after our phrase, that is without passions, he is described as immutable. Immutable meaning he doesn't change. Uh, think of James 1, um, all good gift comes down um, from the Father who is without change or shadow of turning. Um, as immutable, immense, immense means that he fills everything, um, that he is um, larger and, and it's even hard to know what words to use, but he's, he's larger than creation. He, is without, he can't be bounded by creation. He is eternal, he is incomprehensible and almighty. All attributes that set him apart from his creation, right? these are all transcendent attributes. In this way, he is without body and parts. He is not a composite being, right? You can't, and this is, gets to some of the problems that you're wrestling with, Jeremy. You can't split God up, right? You can't, you can't pray to part of God and not all of God at the same time because he is one. He is without body and parts. He is not a composite being. He does not have the spatial and temporal limitations that are an unavoidable aspect of creaturely existence. He is therefore, quote, without passions in the sense that he is not, nor can he be, subject to the limits or external constraints to which the creation is restricted, to the changeable locations or the ebb and flow of human feelings or appetites. Um, so we want to say this, and I think we should say it, but we also, we have, you know, John telling us God is love, right? Or we have uh, Genesis telling us that, you know, God um, was sorry that he made uh, humanity and that he um, was angry with them, right? And so um, I think what we want to do there is, again, this is, again, just speaking to the complexity of how do we talk about the one only true and living God. Um, we have to say, in some sense, both things at once, that God um, does have particularly in his triune nature, a rich emotional life. Um, uh, and yet his emotions um, are not like unto ours. They're not like nature with us. He's not dictated by his emotions in the way that we are, right? Uh, we describe ourselves as falling in love or losing our temper or, you know, we have all, all these sort of, these phrases that we use to describe how our emotions feel as though they, they control us and we're limited by them and we're constrained by them in different ways. God is not like that, um, we want to say. Um, yes, God engages with, within himself and his triune nature and with creation in ways that have um, emotion to them. Um, and yet um, his emotions are not like ours. They're, they're a different quality. He's not um, controlled by them. He's not at their mercy in the ways that, that we would describe ourselves as being. Um, so that, that would be how I would talk about that phrase without passions. Are there other questions about um, statements in this first paragraph that you read here, words that don't make sense or jump out at you or things you want to talk about more? The six or seven minutes we have left. Yeah, Trudy. Mm-hmm.
Well, I, I would be careful to use words like that to describe the yeah. nature of right, Jesus' person, but yeah. Um, Oh, absolutely, yeah. So there is the oneness of God as everlasting Father. Absolutely. Well, it's hard for me to, um, I, you know, I don't know, I can't, I'm not sure I understand exactly what you're saying in terms of all that you're thinking, but I don't want to just give my blank endorsement, but... Um, but I, I think that, I think what, again, the tension that you're feeling is appropriate tension, Trudy, that we're all trying to wrestle with together, which is how do we speak of God um, as he really is? And this is what theological discourse is about. Um, this is why we're doing a class like this that may seem to be like, you know, why aren't we talking about something practical, like, you know, how to have your quiet time or something? And we can talk about those things, but, but we also should talk about things like, how do we talk about the oneness and the triune nature of God? Because we're all wrestling with the, this is practical payoff, right? And I, I, think, I think that some of the questions you're asking are, aren't answerable in, 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 in a fullness, in a full way. What we can say is that there is one God, and that, that, is, that one God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, and that I think that we, that we can't separate him, we can't, you know, but we, we can speak of him in, we can distinguish between, that's, that's the way Christian theology has always put it. You can't separate the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from each other, but you can distinguish them, and we must distinguish them. We must say that the Father can be distinguished from the Son, the Spirit can be distinguished from the Father and the Son, et cetera, et cetera. Does that make sense? Like, I mean, I know it doesn't make sense. It's um, that, that there's one God, um, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Son. The Father is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Son. The Spirit is not the Father, et cetera, et cetera, but they're they're all at the same time one God. And however we talk about God, we have to play within those boundaries, I guess, is what I would say. Um, I think Eric had his hand up, and then, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yep. I think, I think you're right in that this paragraph does not even really attempt to account for the incarnation and in how we speak of God. Um, and I think that's okay because this is not, as I mentioned before, a comprehensive definition of God. Um, this is attempting to define God from a particular angle in a particular way. And, and I, I do think that 
um, that's something that modern theology is uh, speaking of, um, you know, what I was saying before, um, someone like Karl Barth is a theologian who tried very hard to take the incarnation very, very seriously. And, and helpfully so, I think, as a kind of uh, movement against a more sort of classic discourse about God, which at times has not. And you, you could argue that that's, that's a weakness in the Westminster Confession, um, that it doesn't say enough about the incarnation, about how that demonstrates who God is. And I, and I, I think that's a, that would be a fair, a fair critique. Um, uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith is not a perfect document. Um, it's historically situated. But at the same time, even as we say it has weaknesses, we also should say there are some things it does very well. And I think this is a very well-crafted paragraph about God and his nature um, and his essence, um, even though it doesn't say everything that might be said. And it comes from a particular time and place. Um, anyone else, Jeremy? Certainly God's fatherness is something that is fundamental to his being in a particular way. I think that's certainly true. Um, let, let, me, um, let me close by, I just want to read this one more time so we hear it, so we walk out of here with this on our, on our minds. Um, so here again, this description of God from the Westminster Standards. Um, because although we might pick it apart, although we might push against it in different ways, I think it's still a deeply wise, deeply helpful statement of who God is. There is but one only living and true God, who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will, for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty." Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you um, for who you are. Um, we thank you for um, the triune nature um, of God. We thank you for the oneness of God. And we pray that you would grant us wisdom as we contemplate these things. We contemplate um, the character of the one God. Um, we ask this, Father, that you would grant it to us. We pray that as you have revealed yourself by your Son, 
um, that you would give us um, the wisdom um, that we need even um, to understand um, how to speak of you rightly, how to think of you rightly. Um, we pray that you would do this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. All right, friends, we'll worship in a few minutes. <laughs>